good morning, church family. Will you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. This morning we are going to consider the entire uh, chapter, verses 1 through 13, together as you find your place. Uh, get yourself settled in your notes and your Bibles out. I want to remind you that today the Libby, we are collecting the baby bottles for the baby bottle campaign, which supports the Crisis Pregnancy Center here on the south side of Hampton Roads. This is one of our community partners. Uh, we have several community partners that uh, value the same things that we value and, and that are doing incredible work. And one of them is the Crisis Pregnancy Center as they come alongside uh, of women who find themselves in unexpected pregnancies, uh, seeking to care for them. Uh, to, they have an ultrasound machine. They show them uh, the, the life that is growing inside of them. We have a team of people from our church who uh, annually do trainings with these, uh, months-long trainings with these parents. Um, some of them end up coming into the life of our church. And so uh, supporting the Crisis Pregnancy Center, as many other like-minded churches do here in Hampton Roads through the Baby Bottle Campaign, is just one of the ways that we come alongside of this uh, strategic partner, community partner here. If you forgot to bring your baby bottle, you can just bring it up to the church sometime this week, and we'll make sure it goes to where it uh, is intended to go. Uh, but if you did bring it, drop it at the table. This will be the last day uh, that that ministry partner is in uh, the lobby. I invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read, as I said, all of chapter 8, a relatively short chapter here for the book of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 13. The apostle writes, Now concerning food... Offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. For some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers that is, that is Nansman River Baptist Church unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for our partners here in Hampton Roads at the, at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. God, would you bless their work and continue to use them in our community to save lives. What an important ministry. Thank you, God, that you've led our church to be so involved with them. We pray, God, for our time now in your word this morning, recognizing that while it was written in a different time, where, where real physical idols and temples existed throughout a city and it's so ingrained in that culture that seems somewhat different to us, we know that this is your word to all generations and that it has the power to, by, by the work of your Holy Spirit in the lives of those who hear it to change our hearts and our minds. Help us to be obedient to what you have spoken, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today's sermon is entitled, Your Weaker Brother Matters. We move now here in chapter 8 into a new major section in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. By way of introduction this morning, instead of simply introducing this sermon, I, I want to introduce the entire section, which will, it will take us quite a while to move through. It is the longest section in this letter. Just by way of reminders, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 were... Paul's primary concern was what had been reported to him about the disunity that existed in the church at Corinth. And he was calling them through various methods of encouragement to be a unified church. He was comparing their disunity with the unity that they should have in Christ. There was a negative component that he was calling them towards obedience and a positive component. Then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, which we concluded last week, there, the, the primary subject was sexual immorality. And that was a call to reject the sexually immoral, but to glorify God with our bodies, to do so in marriage and in singleness, as we considered last week. Now as we move into this longest section in 1 Corinthians the, the negative component is idolatry. As we'll consider here in chapter 8, the question arises about eating food that was offered to idols. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul is focused on this subject of idolatry. Now, we're going to have two sermons in chapter 9, and it may seem at times if Paul's not thinking about idolatry, but he is. Chapter 9 is an example of how we're supposed to live out chapter 8. And I'll remind you that in the coming weeks as we get to it. Then Paul provides some additional information, really some clarity of how they're supposed to navigate their world of idolatry. But then that idolatry, uh, out of that idolatry, the negative component, Paul then calls them in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 to rightly order their worship of the one true God. So just as disunity should, Paul calls them to, to unity and from sexual immorality into glorifying God with their bodies, they're going to be called from idolatry to right worship of 
God. It will take us uh, a couple of months to work our way through this section together. Like much of 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to both the report that he references at the beginning of the book and a letter that he would have received in response to a letter that he has written. I've told you multiple times, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. We don't have the first letter that Paul wrote to that church. We have the second. And we know this because Paul quotes them on multiple occasions as he does here in these verses. It's clear as we read this, just to kind of introduce this idea of idolatry to us that we'll consider for a number of weeks. It's clear that some confusion had arisen within this body in a similar way that it had on the subject of marriage and sex, where they had, they had divided themselves uh, into factions, a subject that he had addressed in chapters 1 through 4, uh, divided themselves into factions uh, about belief and that some people thought they should do one thing and other people thought they should do another. And that seems to be the case here in chapter 8 as he moves into the subject of idolatry. As in the previous section, th- their question may have been, how far is too far outside of marriage? The question now becomes, how close is too close when dealing with idols? This question is of particular importance to the church in Corinth because of how ingrained pagan worship was in their society. We do not understand. Even if you were to become a scholar in ancient Roman culture and ancient Roman culture, particularly in in the city of Corinth, you would still not understand just how ingrained pagan worship was in every aspect of their society. It was in their homes. It was in their workplaces. It was even in their Walmart. It was in how they bought their meat. And so the subject of how do we eat, and this is really the basic question, how are we supposed to eat? When so much of our food, and not just meat, but particularly in this subject, meat, has been sacrificed to pagan idols. There are, there are three ways that a person in Corinth could consume meat that was either definitely or possibly sacrificed to an idol. Paul is going to address the first of these here, and then uh, later he's going to address some of, some of the others. But I just want to walk us through from the definite to the, positive, to the possible so that we can at least get it in our minds how ingrained pagan worship really was in this culture. First, it was definitely possible to go eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol because the temples in Corinth had restaurants. They had what we would consider banquet halls. And they would host banquets. Benefactors in the cities would would host large banquets and people would be invited. Imagine if your company's picnic was at a pagan temple. That was a common occurrence. And imagine that you need to go to that picnic to keep your job. And so that means you're going to have to go eat in this pagan temple where you know that the meat that you're going to consume and maybe even the, the vegetables that you're going to consume would have been sacrificed to idols. 
And you would know that it was because you're eating in the temple. And certainly they would have, the sacrifice may have even been a part of the festivities. Number two is in the home of a pagan friend. Christians are supposed to be in the world, not of the world. We have lost friends. It's part of who we are. It's part of our calling to make disciples. And so you could assume that the Christians in Corinth had neighbors, family members, co-workers, people that they knew who were pagans. And it was not uncommon for people to eat in other people's homes. And it would have certainly not been uncommon for those pagan hosts to have sacrificed the meal in a temple prior to serving it to their friends. So maybe you just get an invitation to your neighbor's house for dinner and you've got to worry about, has this meat, has this meal been sacrificed to the idol? Is this party even in the name of one of the false gods that were worshiped in Corinth? And third, much of the meat Some historians would argue most, if not all, of the meat in major Roman cities like Corinth where pagan worship was so central that was sold in the market would have previously been sacrificed to an idol, either by the proprietor of that store or that they had purchased it from one of the local temples, meat that had been animals that had been sacrificed, and instead of wasting the meat, they would then just go and sell it in the market. Imagine having to figure out how to navigate this. (laughs) And and am I I supposed to go to the company picnic that's at the temple? Should I go to my friend's house and, and eat meat that knowingly they have sacrificed to an idol? Can I even go to the store? What am I supposed to do? So the next five sermons, one here in chapter 8, two in chapter 9, two in chapter 10, uh, are in one way or another going to concern their navigation of idolatry. But not just the command, as we'll see, to, to flee idolatry, which comes up in chapter 10, but how to actually live as Christians in an idolatrous culture. Our primary concern this morning is, is, is relational, though. I, there's, there's far more of the cultural things that I'm going to get into in the weeks to come. But, but this, chapter 8, really seems to be focused on, on relationship, as so much of 1 Corinthians is focused on, because their relationships had been broken in disunity. So in subsequent weeks, I'm, I'm going to talk about the correlation of the ancient pagan idol worship in Corinth and our modern culture and our society and how we can learn from these principles to navigate our world. But today's sermon is actually less on modern idolatry and more just about how we care for one another, particularly how we care for weaker brothers and sisters in Christ who by our actions we may cause to stumble even into destruction. The main idea of today's sermon, walking in Christian unity, again, primary theme of 1 Corinthians, walking in Christian unity requires believers to consider their actions in light of weaker brothers and sisters. Walking in Christian unity requires believers to consider their actions in light of weaker brothers and sisters 
the scriptures and, and how, it, how the New Testament paints the relationship of the church, local churches living in unity together from one book of the New Testament to another, so challenges our understanding of the Christian faith. Because the modern Western understanding of the Christian faith is very individualistic. And you've, if you have a member here, you've been coming to this church a long time, you've heard me say this over and over. We think about Christianity in terms of me. And I believe, and I do, and I'm responsible. And, and, but the, the, the New Testament authors write about Christianity in, in we language. That, that it's, about, it's about how we think about one another and how we care for one another and about how we spur one another on towards obedience, about how we correct one another when we're in sin. And, and it's this mindset that we need to place ourselves in as we consider chapter 8 together. Divided this chapter into three sections. The first is this, knowledge without love leads to sinful pride Knowledge without love leads to sinful pride. Now, before I even read the verses, let me just go and say, Paul is not saying that knowledge is bad. Some people would say that. Some people would say, you know, really all we need to have is love. We really don't need to care about what the rest of the Bible says. The Bible tells us to love people, and so let's just go love people, and let's not worry about doctrine. Let's not worry about theology. Let's not worry about being right in Scripture. Let's not worry about any of that. That's not what Paul's saying, Okay. So even before we read it, let me just tell you, but he is talking about our heart condition as it relates to how we think about and react to and live knowing that other people are watching us. You ready? Verses one through three. Now concerning food offered to idols. So likely they've written to him saying, hey, we need a little bit of clarity here. And you'll notice the quotation marks. These are our, these are our Bible translators helping us to see what, what Paul is actually, what words are Paul's and what Paul is very likely quoting from the Corinthians. We know that all of us possess knowledge. So in their letter to him, they likely, uh, they likely said, hey, we all, we all got this figured out. We all have some basic knowledge that helps inform us here. Then Paul says, though, this knowledge that they claim puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So the dominant group in Corinth was claiming some knowledge in their response letter to the apostle. And we'll see when we get to verses 4 and, and onward what that knowledge was. But before we address the knowledge, we need to address our hearts because that's what Paul does. Paul begins not with the knowledge that they share, but with the condition of their heart and their position towards one another. Basically, Paul says this in verses 1, 2, and 3, all of the knowledge in the world from a Christian perspective is useless without love. And this is the appeal that Paul makes. He says, if anyone loves God, he is, he is known by God. So, so he's connecting this at, at, a, at a foundational level to their salvation. He's like, you're not saved because of the things that you know. You're saved because the Lord has changed your heart. That you went from loving yourself and loving this world and very likely loving some of these idols that, is, that were worshipped in Corinth to actually loving God. 
And that God then now knows you, and that knows you is not in like this general sense that God knows everything, because certainly God knows everything. He knows every hair on your head. But this is in a salvific way, that God knows you, that you are his, that he's called his sheep, and his sheep is, have heard his voice. And so if you love God, then, you are, then you're known by God. So here's what Paul's saying. All of the knowledge in the world isn't gonna get you to being known by God. It's love, it's a change of heart. Now, so that's kind of the foundational argument that we then build this idea off of. So for those who are known by God, Paul's not saying that, that doctrine doesn't matter. He's not saying that theology doesn't matter. He's not saying that scripture memorization doesn't matter. He's not saying any of these things at all. He's saying, if that's all you've got, you've really got nothing. That, that you've got to have love. And, and to have love is to be known by God because you, you love God because he's changed your heart. Now, if we fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when Paul is rightly is dealing with the right order of, of worship and he deals with things like spiritual gifts and how we're supposed to operate together as a congregation, he returns to this idea and we get what's known as the love chapter in the Bible. All of 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter. You've, you've heard it, probably read at weddings, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with weddings whatsoever. It has to do with the church. And in part, I'm just going to read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says this, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's saying you can, you can build up all this knowledge in chapter 10, or you can build up all of these seemingly outward expressions of the Christian life. But if you're not actually loving God through a changed heart and then loving others because God has changed your heart, then you are these things. You're a noisy gong and a, claiming, a clanging cymbal. You are nothing. You're nothing. And unfortunately, it seems that too many Christians today claim some great theological knowledge, but practice zero love towards their fellow believers. We are, we are far too quick to speak harshly to one another. We are far too quick to speak condescendingly to one another. We are far too quick to, to dismiss the needs of one another. And, and as we'll see as we get further into this passage, failure to take one another's needs and weaknesses into account is sin on our part. So before we get to the actual issue, Paul talks to them and through the word reminds us of the condition of our hearts and the way that the condition of our hearts as loving God should be expressed towards one another, that the way that we live our lives should be defined by the way that we love each other. That, that we, the church, love each other so that I'm taking your needs into account and I'm taking your shortcomings into account and I'm taking our differences into account and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna act as if I love you because I do love you because Christ has changed my heart in a way that I can love you. 
So he says knowledge on its own just puffs up. It just makes us arrogant. It makes us prideful. But we're called to something greater. We're called to love each other. But that knowledge, keep this in mind, that knowledge is still important. We don't, this is the way our world wants Christians to live. Our world wants Christians to live is just some amorphic blob of love that doesn't really stand on any truth at all. Well, that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says, what Ephesians 4 says, that I'm going to speak the truth in love. So I'm going to stand firm and affixed on the word of God, and I'm going to love you from that position. Not going to move off the word of God, but I'm going to act in love, not in hate, not, not you know, causing you despair, or causing you hardship, or, or leading you astray. So the knowledge does matter. So we're going to see that knowledge in verses 4 through 7. This section, varied maturity levels within the church will mean varied levels of knowledge and conviction. So as we saw from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, there are varied maturity levels within the church. And, and, and I was pre- when I was preaching weeks ago on that subject, here, here's what I said. That, that is actually a sign of a healthy church that there are less mature and more mature believers because that means we're constantly bringing in new people into the faith. We're discipling people where they are. We're helping them as they are come to know Jesus and come to follow Jesus. So they're always going to be within the church more mature and less mature Christians. So because of that reality, there's a varied level of maturity and that varied level of maturity means some are going to hold to the knowledge that Paul's going to explain to us more strongly than others, and some are going to have different convictions than others. Let's think about verses four through six, and then we'll look at the first part of seven here in a minute. Paul says, therefore, so knowledge puffs up, love builds up. We're gonna, we're gonna base, we're gonna stand on firm in, in scripture, but we're gonna love people, as we say, and therefore, going to the subject at hand of eating food offered to idols. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, and this is in quote, an idol has no real existence. So that's something they've written to him. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are, through all things and for whom we exist, And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So in verse four, Paul affirms the knowledge that the dominant group in Corinth had. That idols don't really exist. That idols aren't real. That these this myriad of temple worship that existed in the broader Roman world and existed in Corinth, that these are false gods, that they're not real. And then, again, this is in quotes, so this is them speaking to Paul and Paul speaking back to him. They say something incredibly important for a primarily Gentile congregation. They say there is no God but one. This is what is known as the Shema. This is Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the profession of scripture concerning our Father in heaven, that there is only one God. He says, verse five, there there are these so-called gods in heaven. And, And Paul's not affirming that they actually exist. You'll notice they're in quotation marks. He's kind of got air quotes around them, right? 
He's contrasting the dominant position in their culture that there were all of these other gods and they have all of these temples and some of them live in heaven and some of them live on earth. Just go back to like your studies of, of Greek and Roman mythology, right? Like there's, these, there's this pantheon of this polytheistic world that the church at Corinth finds themselves living in. But Paul contrasts that with Christian monotheism, that there is but one God. That, that that's it. That there may be all these temples and there may be all these idols, but there's only one God in heaven. There's only one true God. He is the God of the Bible. This is why he says in verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things are all things and for whom we exist. And the Lord Jesus, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is an orthodox profession of faith. That there is one God and we know him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let me just stop for a minute. If you're gathered with us today, maybe a friend invited you. Maybe you just, you're like, I, I really need to know. I'm having a hard time in my life. I, I really need some encouragement. So you decided to come to this church. Let me tell you the most important thing you can know. There is one God. There's, put out of your mind the fact that there are thousands of religions around the world. They are all not equal. Because there is only one God who put on flesh, became a man, and revealed himself to us. It is Jesus Christ. There is only one God who died in your place, was resurrected from the grave so that you may have life. It is the man, Jesus Christ. It is through Christ alone that we know God. It's not that the world religions are all somehow climbing separate sides of the mountain that are all going to get to God. It is only through Christ. And this is what Paul is agreeing with them on, that these idols are worthless, that they're nothing, that they're carved in wood and stone, that they're images. And there's only one real God in heaven. But there is danger in them. And so I'm just, we're going to fast forward a few sermons to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just so we can see the danger. Because what I don't want somebody to come in here and say, is say, well, that just means idolatry is neutral. No, 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 idolatry is dangerous. Listen to what he says, he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, starting verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, hear this, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord or the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You see, idolatry in this world, false religions in this world are, are not neutral. They are demonic. We need to see them as what they are. That they are products of the lie of the enemy seeking to lead people away from the truth of Jesus. And so to, to hold fast to the knowledge that there is one God and that we know him through the person and work of Jesus is vitally important to the Christian life. Without that knowledge, there is no Christian life. Without that knowledge, there is no regeneration of our hearts towards love of God. And that the opposite of that, idol worship, those idols aren't real. 
Those gods aren't real. Those temples aren't real, but they are leading people towards the lie of the enemy. And so we should not approach them as somehow neutral. And then Paul says something at the beginning of verse 7 that I found just interesting and, and, and took me a minute. I had to work through it this week. And he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Now, let me remind you, he's writing this in the context of the local church. If he was writing this in the broader context of culture, it would be easy to see what Paul means in verse 7 when he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. would be like, well, yeah, those idol worshipers out there don't possess this knowledge. These pagans don't possess this knowledge. They're going to all of these, running around all these temples and sacrificing to these false gods. They don't possess this knowledge about what does it mean to be loved by God and know God through the person and work of Jesus. They don't have that. But he's writing this in the context of the local church, comparing mature and less mature, stronger and weaker Christians. But I think that the key is in the word possess. He, he, he's, I, I think the, the, the key of what, Paul is is saying here is that some people in the church aren't holding to this as strongly as others. Now, it could be that, that what he's describing are those inside the church who have seemed to believe the gospel, but still, because of the cultural influence, have some kind of attachment to idolatry. Again, we just can't wrap our minds around how ingrained idolatry really was in that culture how important it was to them. I mean, it was important for some of them to keep their jobs. And so, like, they had had served these idols their whole lives, and now they hear the gospel, and it's hard to just flip this switch and turn your back on this thing, right? For others of them, maybe they're in the church, maybe they've professed faith in Christ, but they've not truly been converted yet. And so they they're, they're, they're like the, the parable of the seeds. The, the seed has been planted, but we've not yet determined if this has fallen on good soil where it will grow or not. Paul describes them in the continuation of verses 7 and 8. He says, but some, through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol, and their, con- their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. So here's what he's saying. Food is food. It's food. It's fine. And it doesn't matter if it was sacrificed to some false god or not. It's still just food. But for some, because of their weakness, now get this, because of their weakness, whether that weakness is this former attachment or this weakness is they still haven't really responded to the gospel. The seed is there, but but we don't know if that that soil is, is rich and good or not. They may eat food offered to idols and be dragged back into the world, dragged back into idolatry, pulled back into disobedience to God. So this is obviously a serious problem and one that the church at Corinth needs to take serious. We may read chapter 8 and like, food sacrifice to idols, why why does that matter? It It was of incredible importance in that church. Now, could we just step aside for a moment, just for a couple of minutes, and recognize what Paul is actually addressing here and what he's not. He is addressing something that is, he's going to call it here in a minute, sin. And we cause our brothers to, towards destruction. We are sinning against them and we're sinning against Christ. There's a similar passage in Romans 14. We're going to end our day in Romans 14 too because there's a similar instruction that's going to help us. But in Romans 14, Paul is going to address food. And it may seem as if in Romans 
14, he's addressing the same thing he's addressing in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. But he's really not. He's addressing clean versus unclean. And how some are convinced in their own hearts, some have a conviction towards one kind of food, and others have a conviction to another kind of food, and that we're not supposed to impose our convictions on one another, but that we are supposed to consider one another's convictions. He writes this in Romans 14, 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, with a weak person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats despise... Uh, uh, let, the, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of others? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Then in verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In Romans 14, Paul's dealing with personal convictions that are just that, convictions, and you need to be convinced in your own heart some of the things that, that you're going to hold as sin for you, but that you're not going to impose on someone else and you're not going to operate in judgment against someone else. These are things that aren't clearly labeled as sin in Scripture. But we need to understand. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 is clear. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Idolatry is not a matter of personal conviction. Idolatry is sin. And engaging in the act of idolatry, participating in idol worship, must be seen as sin. So Romans 14 is helpful to us because it's dealing with opinions and convictions that we ought to all in the room be able to share together and say, you know what, I wouldn't do what you're doing, but I'm not going to judge you for it. You're going to stand before God one day. He can judge you for it. And I may do some things that you're not going to do. And, and you're not going to judge me for it because I'm going to stand before God one day. And, and these opinions and convictions, we can hold these together. And weak brothers and sisters try to impose convictions on others. That's an important point. But that's not the point Paul's making. Think of that as an aside for a minute because that's not the point Paul's making here. The point he's making here is to actually engage in idol worship. is sin against your brother and is sin against the Lord. Let's see why. Because to lead a weaker brother towards destruction is to sin against him and Christ. Verses 9 through 13. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now we need to put ourselves again in the mindset of the church at Corinth. We saw in chapter six a, a motto of the church. All things are lawful for me, they said to Paul. And then he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So this is their mindset. This is the way they're applying their knowledge. Because I'm secure in Christ, I can basically go out and do whatever I want to. We saw this with the engagement of prostitution in earlier chapters, right? And Paul corrects them because sexual immorality is sin. And we see it here in the first of the three ways that one might consume meat offered to idols. He's going to address the other ones in chapter 10. But here it's important. He says in verse 10, For if anyone sees you 
who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So Paul's going to address one of the places where they may do that, the most obvious, and that's in an idol's temple. And here's what he says. Christians, if for no other reason than for the sake of your brothers and sisters who may be weaker than you in conscience and may see you eating that temple and think then it is okay to worship those false gods, even if you know, even if you possess the knowledge that that God is nothing, don't go and do that. Don't, don't, go, don't go and do that. Don't go eat in this idol's temple. He's going to provide other instructions for things like the marketplace in chapter 10. But here in chapter 8, he says, don't go to the idol's temple. Don't claim your freedom. All things are lawful for me at the expense of loving your brother. Because the weak person could be led back towards their former ways, back towards idolatry. Jesus gives us a similar warning in Matthew 18 that the apostle Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. When I talk about this passage, I always like to remind people, Jesus isn't actually talking about children. The the previous verses, Jesus is talking about his disciples and the necessity of humility to be like a child, to humble yourself to the place of a child to come to Christ. And so children are, are an illustration in this passage. It's not that children can't come to Christ. It's that even adults have to come to Christ as children. And anyone who would seek to lead that person astray Jesus says it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and drowned in the sea. Christ and Paul are in agreement here that we have to take serious how we're leading people towards sin, not how we're practicing our our, our Christian uh, freedom as it relates to my conviction and your conviction. But when the scriptures is clear, flee from idolatry, then don't go eat in an idol's temple. You may say, well, you know, that's pretty easy because we don't really have those around here. Again, we're going to bring this into 21st century thinking in in later weeks. But again, Jesus is addressing our hearts here. You say, why such a dire warning? Well, Paul says, because you may lead them to destruction. And by leading them to destruction, you're you're actually sinning against Christ. Like this, this matters. Paul used similar language to talking about the destruction of the world in, the, in his intro to this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's destruction. But to the one who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. We, when we practice our freedom in such a way that we say, I don't care what weaker Christians are going to think of me. Really, really what we could be doing, particularly in cases where the scripture is clear, like it is in, in this case, what we could be doing is, is leading people away from obedience to Christ or even those whom the seed has fallen on the soil. It's not, not, not yet taken root. We could be, sna- we could be the, the enemy who's snatching that seed away simply by failing to love those around us because we're standing on some 
knowledge that's not connected to love. So what? Do I allow my knowledge and freedom to lead me to act in a way that could cause a less mature believer to fall away? A less mature believer could be called to cause to fall away from obedience to Christ if they're a true believer or lead a seeming believer to fall back into the world. And, and so I want us just to, as way of application here briefly, just to rightly order our minds as we're going in the coming weeks, think about sacrificing our freedoms and think about how we exist in this world, in an idolatrous world, just a different kind of idolatry than they existed in. But to be able to think about freedom sacrifice and to think about navigating idolatry in our world, we have to first order our thoughts and order our hearts towards love. That we actually have to care for one another. And and that what somebody else thinks does matter. I know that's not what, you know, sometimes it's not even what we tell our kids. don't, Don't worry about what they think. What they think doesn't matter. Well, what other Christians think of you does matter because you're influencing them and you're impacting them and you're, 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 you're leading them one direction or another. Go back to Romans 14. Again, the context is a little different, but the instructions are very helpful. It's a little lengthy. I want you to hear it though. Starting in verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not destroy, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. See the similar language? So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for, he, for, for what he has approved. But whoever has doubts and is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin." See, Paul's saying in a different context in Romans 14, the same thing he's saying in 1 Corinthians 8, we actually have to care for one another and how we're spurring one another on and leading one another, recognizing that there are less mature and weaker brothers and sisters in the room. And we need to lead them well. We need to love them well. We need to set an example, mature Christians, we need to set an example of what it means to really be Christ-like for them. And I'm going overtime here, but just hear me. The the way this so often gets applied, both Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, is from one supposed mature Christian towards another supposed mature Christian trying to enforce our own convictions and and trying to make people see things our way and, and do everything the way that I do it. And if I'm not going to go and do this thing or I'm not going to go doing that thing, then no other mature Christian anywhere in the world should ever do those things. But that's not the context in which Paul writes either one of these chapters. The context is there are less mature people. And mature people, we have a responsibility to them so that we don't somehow lead them astray. God forbid. 
that the mature Christians in this church lead someone back into the ways of the world simply because they want to practice their freedom? Paul says, I won't practice any freedom. We're going to see this clearly in the next couple of weeks. I won't practice any freedom if it leads someone towards destruction. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would, you would guard us. A church that so firmly desires to stand in the truth of God's word. To say, as, as the reformer did, here I stand, I can do no other. We will not move off the truth of scripture. Oh, but God, would you help us to understand that that position alone, devoid of love, It's nothing. Let us be full of knowledge, the grace of Jesus Christ, and let us love one another. Because to know God and to love him is to love what he loves, his children. So God, would you help us this week and in the coming weeks to think about the way that we practice our Christianity publicly and how We know that there are young, both in age and in maturity, eyes that are upon us. Lead us away from idolatry, we pray. Lead us towards loving each other, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?